Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend and Chavru, Dan Gordon. Our daf today, Masach Megillah, Dav Chav Ted, page 29. So before we get to the new Mishnah, there's a rather beautiful passage on the, sort of on the top of Amid Aleph, that starts off with a brisa, which describes how Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai says that sort of the Shechina always stays with Bnei Yisrael. And it says that when they were, you know, when they're exiled, the Shechina always goes with them. Um, and so, you know, first it says, when they were exiled to Egypt, talking about when Yaakov and his children had to go down there, right? That the Shechina went with them when they were, and I think it's interesting that they talk about Mitzrayim as being a, a Galut. There's something to think about there. When they were exiled to Babel, the Shechina was with them as well. And then it concludes by saying, that in the future, when they will be redeemed, the Shekhinah will be with them. And so the idea is that, you know, they use Sukim to support all of these things. Um, and, uh, you know, that that it's basically, we're saying that God is always with B'nai Israel. And then the Gemara says, Bababel Hecha. Where in Babel was the Shekhinah to be found? Now, remember, this is the Gemara, which is being written in Babel. This is like a real existential question that it's asking, Right. Where's the Shechina around us? You, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, right? You, who's a, a, a Tana, you know, this was, you know, you told this very nice thing about the Shechina always being with us, right? And Babel that they're referring to there is obviously starting with the first exile, the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash. But here they are sitting there after the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash. And the people of Babel are asking, the Gemara is asking this existential question, Right, the Babel Hecha. Where is the Shechina? Amar so says, "Bebeka in the synagogue of of uh, of Hutzal, ubebeka nisha de de shaf viyate benaharda." And in the Bacon Esed, and we've seen this Bacon Esed discussed discussed before, which was called the shaf viyate, destroyed and rebuilt in Naharda. So that specific one. That Beit, that Beit Knesset is basically that when uh, Yehonia was brought down uh, from Babel, right? This was sort of the first initial part of the exile that happened with Nebuchadnezzar. They were brought down out of Yerushalayim into Babel, and they brought with them to build this particular Beit Knesset some stones and earth that came uh, from Yerushalayim, basically. And so they built it with this particular, uh, this particular, ba- you know, so it was sort of building like a little Jerusalem in Babel. And the reason why it's called destroyed, right? This shop and then the Ativ and rebuilt is the Deshav probably for, re- refers to the destruction of Yerushalayim. And then they rebuilt it. So I also think this is a very interesting idea here. That sort of in a way of understanding that everything was going to be destroyed in a way to rebuild, they sort of take sort of like a seed from Yerushalayim and they replant it in Babel. But it's interesting that in a way to sort of uh, justify or to explain that the Shekhinah is there, right? This 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 Beit Knesset of Hutzal, they don't really tell us too much more information about, but for this particular Beit Knesset of the Shafiyatev, it has to have a connection to Yerushalayim. And then they go on to also say, but don't assume the Shekhinah is both of those places. It's not in Sal, and it's not also in this, this one in Naharta. Ella Uminain Hacha Vizmaninan Hacha. 
right? Sorry, El is Manin Hachav is Manin Hachav. So rather it says, no, sometimes the Shekhinah is there and sometimes the Shekhinah is here. In other words, that the Shekhinah sort of moves from place to place. It doesn't explain how, it doesn't explain when, but I think there's something very beautiful there. We're sort of acknowledging in a way that they are far away, that they are in Galut, that the Shekhinah is not going to be fine in every Beit Knesset. Maybe it's that you experience, maybe when certain groups of people are somewhere or when prayer is a certain way in some of these places, but sometimes it will be here and sometimes it will be there. Then the Gemara goes on, tells something Abai says about, about these shuls. Amar Abai, Abai says, Teitili, right? I should be basically rewarded or it should be given to me in the world to come, right? Because he said, whenever I'm within one parsa, basically, of these synagogues, he would always go in and he would always make sure to pray, right? So this was looked at as a good thing to do, right? And then they go on to say, So Shmuel's father and Levi were sitting in the synagogue, you know, of uh, uh uh, and the Shrina came. They heard some sort of sound and they got up and they left, right? Something now they don't tell us because it's scary. Uh, you know, did they think it was something else? But something made them get up. They actually heard the, the Shrina itself. And then the Gemara goes on to tell another story of Shesha's Habe. If Sheshas was in this shul, right? The Shechina came and he didn't leave. So the Malachi came and they threatened him. They basically told him, you have to leave. If Sheshas says to them, he says to Hashem, right? Master of the universe. Right? So an unfortunate one, meaning me, Rav Sheshas, and a fortunate one, meaning those angels, they're fortunate, who do you defer to? So God says basically to the angels, leave him alone. So the other thing that's interesting here is when the Gemara first starts out and says that some of the Shekhinahs in Babel, and then it goes on to say that the Shekhinahs in these shuls, and sometimes it's in this shul, sometimes in that shul, it seems to be a good thing. But then the Gemara takes this very weird turn by sort of saying at the end, right, that when the Shekhinah is there, people actually have to leave those Beit Knesset. And it, so, you know, it makes sense if we really say that sort of the Shekhinah was in Yerushalayim, in the Beit HaMikdash, right, the place where the Shekhinah actually was, let's say in the Echal, in the Kaddish Kedoshim, you know, regular people weren't actually allowed to be, be there. And in the Kaddish Kedoshim, only the Kohen Gadol went there on Yom Kippur. So I find it odd that sort of, on the one hand, the Gemara is starting off by saying what seems to be sort of a nice Gemara, that yes, traveled with us, but then the Gemara is sort of ending by saying like, but don't get too, can't actually get too close to that Shekhinah. And then the Gemara sort of goes on to, you know, sort of uh, describe, uh, you know, sort of the special Kedusha of, 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 of the Beit Knesset, Right, and of course, the teaching of, of, of Rabbi Yitzchak, uh, the quotes of Basuk from Yechazka, right? These synagogues and sedigals that were in Babel, right, are basically comparing it to this Basuk. 
uh, Rabbeinu Shabbat This was the the house of our of our teacher. He's talking about Rav in Babel. Um, and then it goes on to sort of explain sort of other unique things about the Beit Knesset and the Shul, and that maybe you can study and pray in both of them. But again, I want to go back to this whole, you know, and that in the future, right? And then it concludes by saying, I know I'm reading a lot here, concludes with the following brace of Tanya. Rabbi Elazar Kapar So Rabbi Elazar Kapar teaches. Right now, again, now we're going back to a Tanaitic statement. Atidin batek nisiotu Eventually, these, you know, shuls and study halls of Babel, they will sort of be established in Eretz Yisrael in the time of the Mashiach. Shanamar, and here what they do is they quote a pasuk in Yirmiyahu, chapter 46, that says, Kiva tabor b'harim v'chamel b'yam for like har tabor, man tabor among the mountains, and like har Carmel. Parel shall come to the sea when he gets defeated basically by Nebuchadnezzar. So the Gemara is basically interpreting this as saying that these two mountains actually entered and sort of crossed the sea at some point in history, right? And when did this miracle happen? It happened at the time of the giving of the Torah, that these two mountains, Har Tavor and Har Carmel, were actually out, were near Har Sinai at the time of uh, uh, of Matan Torah. And if that can happen, right, if those mountains could be moved at the time of Matan Torah, so too could the shuls and the Beit Midrashas of, uh, of Bavel, they in the times of, uh, they also will eventually uh, be moved, right? And and then it goes on to say, this is in a Kavachomer, Umatabor Vikarmel Shalobau Right, just as Har Tavor and Har Carmel came right to the to the revelation at Sinai to Matan Torah, only basically temporarily to learn Torah, Nikvaim Eretz Israel, they end up getting established in Eretz Israel. Right, we know there's a Har Tavor and Har Carmel in Eretz Israel, but take Nesiotu Batemi Drashot, Bitzin Bahan Torah, synagogues and study halls in which they read and they and they shared, they increased Torah, Alacha Kama Bakama. They definitely will be established in in Eretz Yisrael. Then it goes on to tell uh, an interesting story about sort of the sort of a little machlokas that took place between Har Sinai and the other mountains during uh, Matan Torah. That part I'm not going to read. So I, I think, in a way, this Gemara is sort of struggling with the existence of loops, right? On the one hand, you know, we have this beautiful Tanaitic teaching that says the Shlin is with us. It wants to believe the Shekhinah is with us, but it also recognizes in a way that I think it's not where the Shekhinah is supposed to be. And I think that's what that subtext is about, that you know these people are in the shul that has that connection. Notice it's not the shul of Hutzal. It's only the shul of Shafiyatev that they encounter the Shekhinah, right? But that presence, that remnant of Yerushalayim is not really supposed to be there. And therefore, you know, technically, you're really supposed to leave. Rav Sheshit sort of fights uh, in order to stay, and then ultimately wants to conclude on this sort of hopeful note by saying, well, whatever we rebuild, you know, whatever gets built in Babel, it's not going to be futile, right? Because I think there's this understanding that whatever gets built in Galut doesn't always stay, right? Or eventually we want to happen that we're going to go back to Eretz Yisrael. And then in a certain way we say, like, all right, well, then why did I spend all this time building the things that I built in Babel? 
And so in a way, it sort of, I think, comforts itself by saying, yeah, you're going to build all these things in Bubba, but what's going to happen in the end? It's actually all going to end up in Israel. So it's really not going to be sort of an, an unworthwhile endeavor. Eventually, all those things are going to come back with you. So I don't know. I find this, this is a passage that's really sort of the existential crisis of what's actually in Galut. Should we even bother building in Galut and sort of saying in the end, no, it's all going to end up in Eretz Israel. It's all going to end up being good in the end anyways. So I had a little bit of a different reaction to this. I find that the tone throughout here is still what we might expect from the Gemara in terms of focusing on the details and comparing and contrasting. And there's a little bit of machloket and, and everything that we would expect if we were also talking about, you know, the kind of more basic halachic disagreement that we encounter. And then, but what the disagreements are, what the context is, is this discussion of Shechina and Matan Torah. And, you know, in a different book, let's say, it would be poetry and exalted poetry, or it would be lofty philosophical, you know, buildings of castles in the air type of language. And here, like the exact same content, right, that we might expect to find in that kind of text is here being handled by the Gemara's standard. And I found it to be a welcome reminder of, I would say, the diversity of what's in Shas, right? Because because the language that we're accustomed to here does not get in the way of making those very sweeping and, and um, extensive philosophical, spiritual kinds of conversation, discussion, whatever. I think that's an important point too, right? They treat it as seriously and in, with the same type of intellectual rigor as they do a halakhic discussion as well. Exactly. Okay, now I'm going to jump ahead. We have here a very long daf. So I'm going to jump ahead. There's a Mishnah here. on the. It's still Hamad Aleph. And what I would call it the Mishnah of the four parshiot. There are four parshiot, which the Mishnah will outline, that happened in, the, we're actually about to come up to them in the calendar year, here, your Dana, there's your Nister. It's not exactly this week, but but soon, right? In terms of in the four weeks, well, we'll see. Let's read the mission inside and then I'll outline where they all are. So there's these four Shabbatot that begin, so or they're surrounding the month of Adar, um, and then lead into also, I guess we add on one for leading into Pesach. So the idea is that each one of these Shabbatot has a special parsha, right? A special passage from the Torah that is read as a maftir. So when Rosh Chodesh Adar falls out on Shabbat, the they read parshat Shkalim on Shabbat. And then Chaliyot Betoch HaShabbat, if it falls out during the week, Makdimin LeSha'avar, or Mafsikin LeShabbat Acheret. But if Rosh Chodesh falls out during the middle of the week, or any time really during the week, right, then they read parshat Shkalim the previous Shabbat, and then so then and then there's a break, meaning these four parshiot don't have to be all exactly in a row. There can be a, a pause, an empty, an empty Shabbat, so to speak, where it's just you don't get one of these special parshiot. Bishniah on the second of these Shabbatot, meaning either it will be directly following the first Shabbat, or it will be a you know skip a week and then you'll get it. Is Bishniah Zachor. That's parshat Zachor where the passage about remembering what Amalek did is read, and that is always right before Purim. Bishlishit Paraduma, on the third Shabbat of these four parshiot, we read the story of the Paraduma, which is from Parsha Chukat in Sefer Bamidbar, which is, and it's called Parsha Para. This is a machloket, 
you know, here and elsewhere, um, whether this, whether Parsha Para is Doraita, right, the, the treatment of Zahor is that it's Doraita. Obviously, these things all are under Machloket, but the question of what's a minhag, what's a nice practice for the liturgy and what has its own um, concomitant obligation because it does something else in addition to being the maftir, right? Meaning when you when we hear Parshat Zachor, we are effectively said to be remembering, doing the mitzvah of remembering what Amalek did. So that by itself, like it, it accomplishes two things. It functions as a maftir, which is, like I said, the minhag or the liturgy, liturgy whatever. And then here we've got um, we've also got this functional mitzvah of remembering Amalek. Fine. Berivit HaChodesh HaZelechem On the fourth Shabbat we read HaChodesh HaZelechem This is a passage from Sefer Shemot and it's called HaChodesh Parshat HaChodesh and it introduces really um, now we're getting to Nisan right? and then B'Chemishit Chuzrin L'Kisidran and then the mission says that on the fifth Shabbat afterwards, we go back to the just the regular reading. Now, we read, nowadays our practice is that we read the regular sedra, the regular parsha of the week anyway, and we add in these parshiot as a maftir. It would seem from this mission that that was not the case initially. They really would have simply read these relatively short parshiot um, and had that been the Torah reading, which is surprising, I think, given how short they are. Or at least, yeah, they're all pretty short. And then the Mishnah goes on, so this is a general principle, right? That on all special days, what happens? The congregation, everybody, the shul, whatever, everybody reading from the Torah kind of interrupts the regular order of the parshiot and then reads the special one. And that when would that be? That would be a Rosh Chodesh that falls on Shabbat or Shabbat Chanukah, or if Purim would fall out on Shabbat, or a fast day that would fall out on Shabbat, which is not, the calendar is kind of rigged to make sure that doesn't really happen. And then um, also on the Mamadot, right, there's the watches from the non-Kohanim, and then, of course, Yom Kippur. If Yom Kippur falls out on Shabbat, you read the reading of Yom Kippur, you don't read the reading of Shabbat. And I would say, again, that nowadays there's a blend. If Yom Kippur falls out on Shabbat, we read the reading of Yom Kippur. But if any of these other um, events fall out on Shabbat, we read the regular Parsha just about always, not Cholmoid, but the rest of these times that are not actually Yantif. And then we would also, we would make a Maftir, a special reading for the day, for Rosh Chodesh or Hanukkah, whatever. Okay, that's the Mishnah. I want to now jump, as I said, it's a very long daf, towards the bottom of Amud Bet. Um, not the bottom, again, it's long. And we've got a discussion here of what happens, how this works practically speaking. So Rav Yitzchak Nafcha, he says, Rosh Chodesh Adar Shachaliyot B'Shabbat Motzi'in Shalosh Torot V'Korin Behem. So this is where I said, like you know, it's not, it's not even back then they were also reading the Sedra, the regular parsha. They took out on Rosh Chodesh Adar if it fell out on Shabbat, they would take out three Torah scrolls. And this is one of those things like your congregation needs to actually own three Torah scrolls, which is not always so simple. And they would read in each one of them. So what does that mean? On the first, the first Sefer Torah that they would read from, they read the regular weekly parsha, right? That's what they're calling here the matter of the day, Inyana Diyoma. The second one they would read um, the portion that talks about Rosh Chodesh, and on the third one they read Bekitisa. This is the parsha of of Shkalim, right? This is because the whole idea is that you're if this is 
I'm sorry. Keep in mind that there were two possible cases of how Shkelem would fall out. This parsha, if Rosh Chodesh falls out during the week, you read Shkelem in advance. But if Rosh Chodesh falls out on Shabbos, we still read the parsha, the maftir, for Rosh Chodesh in addition to the maftir of Shkelem. Okay, so there we've got three Sefer Torahs, and we kind of bang it out that way. We make sure that we cover each one of the topics of the day. Now, Rosh Chodesh Tevet falls out during Hanukkah, meaning it's it's the Rosh Chodesh in the middle of Hanukkah. And then two, we also have three Sefer Torah, three scrolls. So one of them would read the Parsha of the week. Um, and one would be the Rosh Chodesh because the Rosh Chodesh Tevet and then we have a special mafia for Hanukkah and both of those occasions are when we would read when they take out when the congregation would take out three scrolls it's not that common that we have a need for three Torah scrolls to read two we often have and I'll just note that why do we do this right and I think we've even talked about this before that if the mafia is far away from the from the parsha, let's say of the week then the idea that the if you have only one scroll, you'll have to roll and roll and roll the scroll to get to the right place to be able to read and then roll it back again. And it's that first rolling, which is considered to be a tzibura, a burden on the congregation to have to wait while that rolling happens. Of course, a shul that only has one Torah scroll will manage it, but that's the bottom line. Um, the Gemara goes on, and there's a lot more discussion of exactly what happens when you've got you know, these conf- um, conflating days, you know, where they've got different demands of what the Torah reading is going to be. And of course, the Gemara works it out, but um, but that's that's what the rest of this stuff is about. Uh, well, there was a lot of good stuff on this stuff. I think it's interesting how the Gemara sort of gets back to, well, the Mishnah at least, is getting back to sort of Purim again, right? With the Arba Parshio. Like, just from a structural point of view, we took such a different, turn you know over the last paragraph and the beginning of this paragraph now it's like we're sort of getting back to perm again i feel it's like part of this wrap-up meaning we're not we're not yet quite done with the with the masachet but we're getting there right so let's let's bring it back to this liturgy that includes perm i'm not saying it's so so um direct as all that but it, it kind of feels that way to me yeah no i i think it's very deliberate i, I just sort of wanted to note it well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Ring us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydron website. Let us know what you thought about the stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.